Welcome. This is Andrew Schechter, host of Politically Incorrect Podcast on EA Truth Radio, brought to you by Eternal Affairs Media every Thursday night. Today we have a very special guest we'll present in just a moment. We'll take a moment and stop for a prayer because this uh, guest needs it, needs it, needs our prayers more than any other. Any other, Heavenly Father, Heavenly Father, we pray in your in your glorious name for the daughter of that, that of uh, of uh, of our guest. Um, who is suffering immensely? Who has been mistreated and and been mis and been misguided by by her supposed doctors and, and hospitals? We pray that you see her to freedom once again and to health and 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 pray for her family, her her mother, her father, and all of her relatives and friends and family that they can get back to normalcy with your help. We pray that you assist them in, our, in your glorious name, O oh Lord. Amen. Without further ado, we welcome to today um, Hope Hope uh, <laughs> Hope, Sch- Hope Schachter. I, I keep confusing my name, Andrew Schachter, with Hope Schachter. <laughs> it's very confusing. Uh, in a very serious situation with her daughter, um, where they, she's been basically taken over by hospitals and is now in the possession of the state, essentially. And and is is very sick, and and we need we need hopes, prayers, and any kind of support. And I'll, I will, without further ado, I will allow Hope to uh, uh, introduce yourself further, and also introduce the problem you're experiencing right now, and and where and where it's occurring. Uh, go ahead, Hope. Sure. So um, I'm just uh, wanting to uh, thank you for having me on to tell Autumn's story, and to your listeners um, for uh, you know praying for our family. Um, so. About a month ago, my son uh, wound up with like a stomach bug, and um, you'll see that this sort of trajectory from stomach bug to ventilation and all of the issues in between um, just gets more and more extreme. But um, his stomach bug only lasted for about three days, and he was in great spirits. Uh, He was fine, his normal self, uh, other than you know the diarrhea. And so when that cleared up a few days later, my daughter had complained of um, how uh, she pointed to her stomach and said that it hurts right here, but I can't go potty. And so uh, we're actually fire victims in California and she has a pretty sensitive constitution. And so it's not totally abnormal for her to maybe have constipation here and there. Um, And so I thought, well, it's either the tummy bug or, you know, kind of some of that lingering. And so we'll just keep an eye on it. And the next day um, she says the same thing, only this time she throws up. Now she doesn't continue throwing up, but she does start to have diarrhea and it occurs every 20 minutes to the T, like it's like a countdown. I know exactly when it's coming next. And that lasts for three days until we go to urgent care. Um, and they hear about my son and they send us home. So two more days go by and, uh, it's still every 20 minutes around the clock. No one has been sleeping. And, um, we go back to urgent care and they say that it might be intussusception, which is a small like intestinal or colon prolapse. And when you look up the symptoms, it says diarrhea every 20 minutes. Um, it also describes jelly stool, which at that point, you know, my daughter wasn't eating very much. She was taking in lots of fluids, but wasn't eating a whole lot. And so, um, there wasn't much left in her. It was almost like dry heaving, uh, but the other direction. And so um, the description of jelly stools seemed potentially accurate too. So they told us at urgent care, they can't diagnose it with pediatric ultrasound or CT. They don't do that there. And that we would need to go to the emergency room for the treatment anyway, which is usually an enema. So it's easily resolved. 
So we went to the emergency room and they rolled out into susception and told us that she had pediatric E. coli. Um, and a pediatric E. coli infection has to be treated um, somewhere like a children's hospital, but they, they don't treat it there. And based on her numbers that um, they were consulting, her lab numbers, they were consulting with Lucille Packard. And it was recommended that they give her um, something called Lasix, which is a diuretic. And the thought I would later go on to learn about um, in this, uh, what they would call like a syndrome, um, where it impacts the kidneys is that the E. coli um, breaks down and it releases a toxic byproduct that um, can upset the kidneys. And so they give these diuretics to try to flush the kidneys very quickly um, and, and very aggressively. Um, but up to that point, we she had been urinating quite well, even though she hadn't been eating, she was drinking a lot of fluids um, because she hadn't, she hadn't been really throwing up at all. And so I remember with urgent care, they wanted her to separate like a stool sample from urine sample. And that's hard when you're four, if you're having diarrhea, but um, we kept the little cup and we said, we would take it to the emergency room with us. And I said to my husband, like, I'd be surprised if she could fill that up. Right. Because she's been having so much diarrhea. I imagine she's somewhat dehydrated. And he was like, no, she's been peeing great. And he showed me, um, you know, she filled it up. And, uh, and then when they started the Lasix, the um, nurse had told me that um, typically patients don't even make it to the restroom within 20 minutes before they wind up having a very large urine output, but it's supposed to work aggressively. So within an hour, um, and it did, I remember uh, just being a little alarmed at how much output uh, my daughter was having um, for urine. Like, where is that coming from? And diarrhea. I was like, at this point, like, I don't even know how she has anything left in her. Um, so I had that kind of like red flag in my head around this form of treatment on a child. But um, we were being sent to Lucille Packard and we were told it would be fluid management. And so I assumed maybe this was kind of a part of that. Like I, I didn't quite understand yet. Um, so my daughter had never even had Tylenol before this. And it was a little concerning that when we got to Lucille Packard, they wanted to continue that same medication, but kind of um, mix it together in sort of this cocktail fashion with another diuretic and, um, you know, up the dose uh, as as they got started. Um, also, when we first got there, it was very interesting. Uh, I have to preface this by saying I actually used to work at Luso Packard as a marriage and family therapist many years ago. And so I'm not a fan of teaching hospitals. Um, but right when we got here, they said that she would be the case study of the week, which was just such an odd way to approach a child in so much apparent discomfort. Um, and also, uh, you know, they said things in front of her, like, we want you to know she could die instead of what I imagine would be offering some source of comforting care, even while expressing the seriousness of a condition, um, something maybe along the lines of, you know, uh, while this uh, syndrome could be life-threatening, we're going to do our best to try to stop it in its tracks. And these are the ways that we do so, right? But it, it wasn't like that. Um, so when they started this cocktail, it's Lasix, and then they add in one called, they add in one called Diarel, and then they want to bring in another um, medication called Aminophilin based on her lab work. Um, and I start to say like, hey, my kid has never even had Tylenol. Can we maybe pace these? Um, and there was uh, clearly a tone in the air of um, 
kind of how dare you. Uh, And I was told that I was resistant to her treatment and I needed to keep her um, safety in mind, uh, which was, you know, concerning the way to be spoken to like that. Um, And I tried to remind them, like I've, I've worked in a hospital setting before. And can we just bring our nervous systems down a little bit? My daughter is very sensitive. She's always reading the room. Um, And so when we have adrenaline and cortisol, coursing through us, we're not going to see positive health outcomes. Um, but I proceeded with the aminophilin at their, you know, I wouldn't say request, I would say a little more demand, but, um, and then my daughter, uh, goes on to throw up blood and that happens two times before they are willing to scale back the aminophilin. Cause that was the most, the newest, um, medication that they had added. Now, as this is going on, my daughter's urine output is rapidly declining. Like it is becoming pretty much non-existent. So I'm, you know, concerned uh, because when we first got there, they talk about, you know, the progression of the syndrome can, well, they just, they describe it as a roller coaster and up and down a back and forth and all over the place, but it can lead to dialysis. Um, and so I know that they mentioned that some people don't even get their kidney function back at all. And I'm starting to think, okay, well, these medications are so aggressive. I'm seeing a decline on them. I'm not seeing improvement. Um, and I wonder if those children who do not actually recover kidney function, if, if this protocol actually contributes to that. Um, and I will go on to speak with, you know, um, some medical advocates groups and directly with patient advocates like um, pharmacists, nurses, doctors about the medications that my daughter has been given. And actually the number one um, serious risk is uh, kidney injury or renal failure. So that's very concerning that I was not given informed consent about that. Um, And so as you know, she gets to basically no urine output. Um, and she has an IV. So, you know, there should be something. Um, they tell me that we uh, are going to new- need to move on to a more aggressive phase of the treatment, which we keep getting aggressive, right? Like we're getting so forceful on the kidneys when they've already been under assault, assault supposedly from this infection. So that's, you know, another another level of concern to me but um what they want to do is they want to uh, do an iv of the lasix and um so a constant drip and they want to um add in diarel they also rotate it with bumex the lasix and the and the bumex um and she will have to have a uh catheter a urinary catheter and that's extremely traumatizing to a four-year-old so i also don't understand the justification when a child is not having any urine output, uh, it doesn't make sense to do a catheter. So I say, you know, c- could we do bladder scans? And then if her bladder is full, but she's ha- not having a- output, she's not able to pee, then maybe a catheter would be warranted. And that is met with um, how <clears throat> then I won't be welcome. We won't be welcome in the ICU. And um, if we need dialysis, which at this point, her kidneys are not functioning, um, then we'll just have to be medevac somewhere. So obviously it feels like coercion and um, you know, they reiterate the standard of care, which the standard of care is really the general population, but my job as a mother to make sure that's individualized to my child. Um, And so, you know, we do wind up proceeding to go to the ICU only because I feel like I don't have any other options at this point. Um, 
especially without kidney function. So I, I do ask them, like, it looks like, right, like now her kidneys are not working at all. And um, what if this doesn't work? Like, should we just jump to dialysis and give the kidneys a break if they're angry? Um, and I'm just, you know, sort of met with, um, you know, a lot of combativeness about the risk of dialysis. So okay, but we might wind up there anyway is my concern, right? Um, so we're on the ICU. And uh, when we first had gotten to the hospital, they mentioned, you know, moving towards dialysis, you're also looking at the potential for a transfusion. And so as we're beginning this LASIK strip, and we're not seeing any changes, um, you know, they add it, they rotate the Bumex and add the Diarel. Um, our, uh, you know, our daughter is clearly not improving. And, um, you know, the numbers are getting concerning and we're looking at dialysis and we've been asking about my husband uh, using his blood for my daughter. Since we arrived, we expressed that that was what we wanted. And we were met with how, oh, it takes five to seven days. It's a long turnaround then, um, but we will have them call you today. And they're telling us that morning and night. So by the time we get to something like day three, um, you know, they're, they're talking about dialysis and transfusion and her numbers and she is hemolyzing and, uh, we're upset. We're upset that, you know, they're sort of pushing the blood bank blood, which we don't understand why, because, you know, when you're, when you're getting blood from a, an anonymous donor at a blood bank, uh, through the hospital, you actually waive all liability from the hospital and you assume all risk. So that includes things like HIV or any number of transmittable diseases, but also, and I don't know, I haven't donated a blood in a while, but, um, I don't know if these people smoke. I don't know if they're drinkers. I don't know what their immune system or their lifestyle is like, and they're going to be sharing their body fluids with my daughter. So why wouldn't the hospital want us to have the least risky um, blood for a transfusion? It, it was just very confusing to me. So, um, you know, we get, we get on the track of dialysis, this you know, Lasix drip has not worked and they actually removed the catheter saying it's a risk for infection, which was part of my concern. Um, and uh, they tell us that she's going to have to have a port put in her neck because for short-term dialysis, um, it's it, they usually do your neck and then for longer term, they do a tunnel line in your chest, similar to uh, like people who receive chemotherapy. And so um, I told the, the attending that, I'm, you know, concerned. This is a teaching hospital. I don't want a resident or a student working on my daughter. And I'm told that a fellow would have to do it. Um, a fellow would be performing it, but that the attending would be right next to them the whole time. So I have a newborn and a toddler and my husband waits outside the room. And when I go to switch out with him, uh, the fellow is, uh, finishing up on my daughter and the attending is in the hallway at the nurse's station. And my husband shares with me that they actually made the line too long. They had to unsuture it, shorten it, and resuture it. Um, and so obviously I'm upset because the attending isn't even there, but um, I just want to get her better. And I'm trying to focus on, on the dialysis, right? And so um, around this time, they start telling us that she has to have a transfusion and they give us parameters that she would have to meet in order to avoid it. Um, and my husband is calling the lab directly and he finds out that he can get an appointment within 30 minutes. So 
this we were told that this would be this incredibly long process and it's uh, in 30 minutes um and we're told that as well that it would take about three days or less for turnaround time so um moving into dialysis uh she actually starts bleeding from the port in her neck and um, we're told by the dialysis nurse that um, they need to tighten it and resuture it. So during that procedure, I actually hear my daughter wake up at least twice um, screaming, uh, even though they put her under with propofol. Um, so it obviously wasn't being managed very well. Now I have a high tolerance to um, sedation and uh, the story goes on and, and, and we definitely clarify that she does as well. But it was concerning to hear your daughter screaming um, for something so so traumatizing that you had hoped that she would be asleep for. So she's continuing to have bleeding from this site in her neck and we're, you know, worried about her having to have a transfusion. And the next day they tell us that they are going to have to pursue a court order um, if she doesn't get a transfusion that day. So it's been 24 hours, maybe a little longer. And my husband calls the lab saying, you know, it's life or death. And how soon can you get us my blood? And they said, we can get it to you tonight by 6 p.m. So it was a little over 24 hours, not the forever long, uh, you know, wait that, that we had been told by the medical team that it would have would have had to be. But also, why is my husband the one making this happen? Why wouldn't the medical team call the lab and say that it's an emergency, it's life or death or any of that? Like, why? Why Why does it matter to them whose blood she gets? Um, and wouldn't they want the less the less risk for her? So it's absurd to me. And, and they take me aside and they're saying things again about the standard of care and that we're outside of the norm. And what are we going to do if we need another transfusion? And I'm saying like, well, we would have people that we know and love donate. We also wound up using um, the organization's Blessed by His Blood and Pure Blood Registry, where you can talk with your donor, where you can um, not necessarily interview them, but you can, you can develop some sort of comfort level with the people that will be donating blood to your child or your loved one. And so um, proceeding with dialysis, we finally get his blood and uh, there's an issue with the dialysis machine, the filter breaks, and she winds up not being able to get all of the blood that was his. Um, and so again, I'm upset. Like it's hard to feel like we're in good hands. There's a lot of medical mismanagement that's happening and there's just a ton of combativeness. Um, because I had gotten to the point when they were threatening court order that, you know, do we go with the court order and then it buys us time until, until dad's blood gets here. I mean, that's how, how serious I, I took my daughter's health, you know? Um, and so, um, so going on with dialysis, um, we're continuing to have bleeding from the port in between dialysis treatments, during dialysis treatments, and my daughter is becoming traumatized. She will not move. She stays in like this position with her arms up by her head and her head tilted to one side. Um, and I know that I've always called her my camel. So even if she had to pee, which that's what we're waiting on is the kidneys to start again. I knew that she wouldn't and like that. I've always had to prompt her. She, she potty trained very early and she's one of those kiddos that I always have to say, okay, go sit down and go potty. Um, and so, you know, there's, there's that. And then with the dressing changes, uh, they're 
you know, she's got this tube sticking out of her neck. Uh, when she screams or cries, it squeezes and more blood comes out um, just from the, that tightness. And um, they're putting alcohol on it. They're trying to add coagulant to get it to stop bleeding. And I just know, like I know when I look at her, that her kidneys aren't, her body's not going to focus on healing her kidneys when it has what it thinks is an open wound on its neck that a bunch of blood is continuing to come out from. Um so, you know, this goes on for days with her dialysis treatments. And at one point in the dialysis process, um, it was very upsetting to, uh, you know, but when we had started dialysis, I would ask tons of questions. What's in this part of the machine? What's there? Is that saline? Um, and at probably her third or fourth dialysis treatment, they pull something out from the machine and it's labeled albumin, um, which is a blood product. And I'm told that I don't have to consent to that because um, it is shelf stable and it goes in the dialysis machine. Um, and when I say, well, what makes it shelf stable even? Um, what preservative is in there? And they said, there's no preservatives. It's shelf stable because of the aluminum in it. So obviously that's really concerning. And I wind up you know, crying on the bathroom floor most of that night um, because the team knew that I didn't want a blood product in my child. And the alternative, when I discovered the albumin, they told me was saline. So, um, so anyway, we're continuing with this fight with the port and the dialysis and having all these issues with bleeding. And one night I wind up restraining my daughter for two hours, begging for more Ativan, um, cause initially they wouldn't give her any, but it's becoming so stressful. Um, that yeah, I'm holding her down for two hours uh, while they try this dressing change, more coagulation agents. And um, it's just so incredibly traumatic. And then she winds up bleeding still for the rest of the night out onto the pillow in the bed. Um, and in the morning, she is screaming, take it out, take it out of my neck. And um, so they had told us when it came to the tunneled line, right, that's more for long-term dialysis patients. But I'm thinking at this point, that would be less traumatizing to my child. But it's a Sunday and they want to wait till a Monday when the OR team is there and they're able to perform it with all of their staff. Um, and so we demand that they remove it from her neck. Now, if they have to put it back in in the middle of the night for emergency dialysis, then we're willing to take that risk. But otherwise, it's not it's not sustainable for her to be screaming and bleeding in her bed all day and all night. Um, so especially because we wound up needing another transfusion, which, you know, we were able to use the direct donor blood now that, you know, we've made that seamless ourselves instead of the, the medical team doing so. Um, so they proceed to remove the port from her neck and within an hour of it being removed, she wakes up from anesthesia and I sit her up and I say, do you have to pee? And she says, yes. And she pees. Um, now I think that's because we removed this site of trauma from her neck, but it's not a lot of urine. So her kidneys are clearly very slowly waking back up, um, very slowly coming back online. And she continues to have urine output, just not much. So the medical team comes to me and says that I really need to be pushing fluids. And I'm a little concerned because she's not having a lot of output. Um, so I think maybe they're trying to like wake up her kidneys more or something, uh, but she doesn't want anything to drink. So I'm really having to be forceful in getting her to drink as much water as they're recommending. But I noticed that her blood pressure is starting to go up 
and she starts to get really puffy. So the next morning I say like, she doesn't want the water. I noticed her blood pressure had gone up when I was pushing it, which at that point it had started to go down a bit and she's continuing to gain a lot of weight. And they say to me, Oh, actually that was a charting error. You should not be pushing fluids with her. Um, you should only give her as much water as she's requesting, which is probably very little. Right. Um, so now she's getting really puffy and she gets to a point where, um, you know, we haven't done the tunnel line. Uh, they don't seem to be super concerned about her numbers. Um, but she's clearly retaining a lot of water. And so, what they want to do, uh, you know, as soon as she had started urinating was put her back on the same protocol as when we got there. And I, I didn't want to do that. I had asked for time, but it's like they put me in a position where I might have to. And so, um, I wound up speaking with a medical advocacy group, um, sent some of their patient advocates to get some advice on, the options for medication if we did do a diuretic. And I was told about one that uh, was not brought up to me by my, my daughter's medical team called hydrochlorothiazide, which instead of acting forcefully and quickly, um, like these other diuretics that act within an hour, hydrochlorothiazide usually has a response of, of four to six hours. And so um, I felt that it was a gentler option potentially. And so we decide to, you know, probably move forward with that. Um, if, if she continues without having um, substantially more output and around that time, they also discuss how her potassium levels are getting a bit high and they want to do the Lasix, which to me is like, that's not a treatment for high potassium. Um, so they present me with Kaxalate and I spoke with a patient advocate and was told that, if we do choose to do the K-axalate, that we also need to be careful because it can lower calcium. And just a few days prior, I had been telling them, my daughter doesn't drink milk and she is begging me for milk. Is there something that would indicate that would indicate for you and something concerning, right? Um, and it was very, very much dismissed. And so when we were going to use the K-axalate and I, I learned this, um, I said, you know, that I wanted to evaluate her calcium levels and probably supplement her. And that was met with resistance. Um, but it was by a nighttime resident. And so she left for a little while and then she came back and said, Oh, right. Yes. Calcium. Um, you know, that, that can affect your heart if you don't, if you don't have adequate levels. So, so really repeating what I said. Um, but again, this, this is another instance where like I'm having to do the, the work, right? Like I, why wouldn't they have caught that? Um, seeing that her labs were low for calcium. So, <clears throat> and that she could have been at risk. So we proceed with the K-axalate and do decide to do the hydrochlorothiazide. I'm a little nervous because her urine output is increasing. It's becoming more, um, but still, right, like not, not at full capacity, not for her, not enough for her to really let go of this, this water retention that she has. Cause you know, six pounds or more when she's only 36 pounds to star is a significant proportion of weight for her. Um, and so, uh, with the hydrochlorothiazide, we do see increased urine output, especially because I believe, um, uh, one of the patient advocates recommended that we ask about metabolic acidosis. And, um, it's funny because when 
they, you know, came up to me with a solution for metabolic acidosis. They were like, oh, you'll probably want to do the tunnel line because you don't like medication. So we should just look at dialysis. And I was like, well, what is, you know, what is the solution from what I understand? It's baking soda. It's not medication. <laughs> and, and it was, it was baking soda. So they were going to give her surgery instead of baking soda. So it's clearly like this whole convoluted way of thinking to me. Um, <clears throat> so her urine output continues, but, um, last Sunday, uh, not this past one, the one before, um, it got to a point where then it became too much urine output. So it became quite excessive and she started to lose all the weight that she had gained more than six pounds within 36 hours. She's having a liter of output every three to four hours. And so the, the staff comes to me, the, the medical providers, and they say, we want to challenge her kidneys today, which I thought was odd because like, we're, aren't we supposed to like gently support the body? Um, and obviously they've got a more aggressive and forceful, uh, approach to treatment. And so they wanted her to drink a liter and a half of fluid. And so I'm thinking at that point again, like maybe it's like an input output thing, but I learned that a liter and a half is like five liters for an adult. That is a ton of water. And by that night, she starts throwing up the water. So she's losing rapid amounts of water. She's throwing up water, but she has actually gotten to the point now where she is begging me for water because she says she's so thirsty. So speaking to a patient advocate, um, it's recommended that maybe I ask about the um, the possibility of an IV, uh, just a small amount of water to let her body know uh, that it's that it's not dehydrated because she's losing so much, um, and then her body was not ready to process the input of fluid at the same time that perhaps her body does think she's dehydrated. And additionally, I asked too because they had low lowered the sodium bicarbonate from four times a day to two times a day, if that could be causing this. Um, this clear like upside of her system, right? That her system is overwhelmed. And I'm told by the nighttime resident that uh, it's believed by the medical team that she can make it to rounds at 9 a.m. the next day and to feed her ice chips. So I'm feeding her ice chips literally all night until four in the morning. And around four, uh, around five, um, I feel like she's been asleep for maybe an hour and she wets the bed. Now, again, she's my camel, so she doesn't typically wet the bed. Um, and so I said something to her and her response was very odd. It was about like her brother. Um, and so I got up and I walked around to the other side of the bed and she's looking up into the left, although now I'm up into the left and her eyes are darting back and forth. And so she is having a seizure, um, which I think was just far too much of a, of a fluid imbalance and an electrolyte imbalance, um, from, from all that rapid weight loss, because now she has lost all of it. She lost everything that she had gained, it appears. Um, and so she has the seizure and I get the nurse and, um, she's given Ativan and taken for a CT scan. And in the CT scan, they said that there's a little bit of a blurry part in the back where of her brain. Um, and so they do an evaluation and she can push and pull and do all the things with her limbs, but she is keeping her eyes closed. Now she hasn't slept all night and she was given Ativan. 
and it's bright in the ICU. Now she's, you know, she's been moved back and forth to the ICU and to the nephrology department. And she's back in the ICU now and it's very bright. And um, neurology doesn't seem super concerned, especially when we were down at the CT scan. Um, they didn't seem alarmed enough to require an MRI, but the doctor, the ICU doctor comes in and says that she um, is concerned about a hypertensive stroke. Now she had had high blood pressure um, throughout the week prior, um, but the hydrochlorothiazide actually lowers your blood pressure. And so um, when they had recommended another blood pressure medication, um, we had declined when we would see her blood pressure go down with the, with the thiazide. And so they want to start her on blood pressure medication, but first they want to do this MRI. So I, I believe that they're administering the blood pressure medication, maybe even before, but they want to rule out the stroke. Um, and so they um, tell me that they'll have to intubate her for the anesthesia for the MRI. And I spoke with a patient advocate and I'm a little hesitant because the neurologist didn't seem as concerned as the ICU doctor. And I've always said as a therapist that, People who are attracted to intensive care probably feed off of that. You know, they really thrive in those environments. They like it. Um, and so the patient advocate had said, I might not do that. I might wait. But I could also tell there was a lot of hostility um, in, in the space with us about, you know, um, keeping her safety in mind and having her best interests. Things like that were being used. So we agreed to do the the MRI and uh, they told us when the MRI was done that she had indications of a condition that they call press. Now I had a friend who had press when she gave birth and it's due to the rapid um, expansion and constriction of the blood vessels in the back of the brain. Um, and it's, it usually resolves on its own. So it's not of major concern, but um, they're not extubating her, which is odd to me. <clears throat> so we've been asking all day, like, when will she be extubated? And eventually they come and tell us, oh, you know, maybe later this afternoon. Um, there is some fluid in her lungs and uh, that the ventilator will provide compression to move fluid out of the lungs, which even even then, as I understood ventilators, which I went on to speak with a pediatric respiratory therapist to confirm is that they're not used as treatment. They're a, they're a stopgap. Um, and so hearing that the ventilator was just going to be compressing her lungs enough to move fluid out of them felt a little far-fetched to me. Um, and around the same time, they brought in equipment to put an EEG on her, um, to monitor her brain activity. So it starts to become clear if they're putting an EEG on for overnight that they're not going to extubate her. Um, <clears throat> so by the late evening, when the doctor is about to leave, the, uh, the fellow and the attending, um, I said, you know, I'm not seeing the needle move at all on this. And I want to know where this is headed. Where is this going? And I'm told that they're not surprised, you know, even with healthy lungs like she has that, you know, um, she's at the place she's at right now and that she's good for the night. And that eventually this might be a conversation about diuretics, but that would be an evolving conversation. And again, she is good for the night. Um, and so it's very much, you know, dismissed. And uh, I say, you know, okay, well, I want to be notified. And I say this to the nurse as well, excuse me, of any new medications that she's given. Um, 
And this is around the time, you know, where she's being sedated, but she's not easily sedated. So she's getting, you know, PRNs and boluses and she's got, you know, um, Presidex and uh, Propofol and they're, you know, the PRNs are fentanyl and Ativan um, and it's constant and she's just, she's, she's agitated. She's not, um, she's not sleepy and restful, um, you know, and she's grabbing at the tubes, she's crying. Um, and it's very, it's very hard to see as a mother. Um, and so I do get woken up at night for diaper changes, um, which, you know, they have her in diapers because she's not able to move. And um, they let me know that they're going to administer Ativan after one diaper change. They let me know that she's going to uh, get fentanyl after another diaper change. They bring me Tylenol for her for pain, um, which I declined because she had just had fentanyl. Um, and uh then I wake up for a diaper change around four and I said, wow, her heart rate is really high. And the nurse said, yes, I also just had to give her blood pressure medication. And I said, well, what changed? And he said, well, we gave her the Lasix about an hour ago. So the Lasix is the drug that we, you know, had been working so hard to avoid the, the hydrochlorothiazide, if they had looked at her chart was the option that we had worked with for gosh, 10 days or two weeks at that point um, with the nephrology team as an alternative to Lasix. Because when we got there, that was when I saw her urine output rapidly declining. So I'm very upset. I'm, you know, telling the nurse that, uh, you know, you, uh, you were instructed to wake me. Why wouldn't you? We've been avoiding this medication. And I'm telling the night doctor, you know, why would you not? I was told this was going to be an evolving conversation. Why would you not come to the parent and say, hey, some things have changed. Um, this is these are our options right now um, and explore the options that you want to, you know, utilize diuretics. And then why wouldn't you obtain consent from the parent before you administer a medication? Um, and so I'm saying, I do not believe this is legal for you to administer a medication to my child without my consent. And um, as the story goes on, which I'll get into within 24 hours of me expressing that I will be filing grievances about this, um, CPS is, is called and comes into the picture. Before we get there, uh, the next day, you know, I've expressed how concerned I am. If they had just looked at her medical record, they would have known that we were utilizing different drugs than something they'd given her. On top of the fact that we have not consented to this and it wasn't even discussed, I tried to have the discussion about next steps the night before. Um, and they give her three new IVs for the different medications and fluids that they're going to be using um, or continue using. And so... Um, they bring up a pick line, uh, which runs from the inner leg up into the chest. And I said, well, we just put these three IVs. She's not easily sedated, this poor, poor child. And they had also required an art line in her arm um, to monitor her blood pressure. They told us it was more accurate. Within two days, it doesn't work. And they're using the cuff again. So her, her arm is all swollen from this art line that they still have in. Um, but they're saying, oh, well, we can also use it for blood draws. Um, and so I don't want another line in her unless it's completely necessary. And I express that. And uh, the doctors tell me, well, you know, when it's, I say, well, when it's necessary, we can look at that. And they say, well, when it's necessary, it might be the middle of the night, we might have to come and wake you. 
And obviously that's something I want them to do at this point that I've expressed. And I say, well, that's my job. I'm her mother. And they say, well, you might only have a few minutes to decide. And I said, well, that's my job. I'm her mom. Um, That same day, they also have the neurologist come to speak with me about an anti-seizure medication. And at the end of the conversation, she said, it does, it does potentially impact the kidneys. So that's something for you to consider. And so you know, we've ended the day about this pick line. Again, we're not really seeing any numbers move. Um, a resident at one point had come to talk to us uh, about maybe moving her for, to BiPAP and high flow um, for for extubation, but the fellows quick, the fellow and the attending quickly backtracked on that. Um, but we had even spoken at one point with the fellow about, about BiPAP being an alternative. And she said it was the less gentle option because kids don't like when it's on your face because it's like hanging out a car window. Um, but obviously to me, that would be far less traumatic and invasive than being um, on a ventilator. So we get to this point where we're saying, what if we, what if we revoke our consent to the ventilator? What if we just do BiPAP, um, which is met with a lot of hostility. Now they know they've done a lot of things wrong at this point. And so, um, you know, the next morning I'm asking for the doctor saying, I want to speak with them about the anti-seizure medication because the patient advocate has spoken with me about, um, an alternative about Lamictal instead of, um, instead of the one that they were recommending. And so um, I still don't hear from the doctor. The nurse is texting to try to get the doctor to come and CPS comes into the room and me that um, we are uh, not complying with the doctors over the pick line, which I had said I would have that conversation when it was a necessity and the anti-seizure medication, which I've been trying to speak with them about an alternative. Um, and so I'm obviously, you know, upset. Um, now they go and talk to the doctors and they bring the doctors back in to speak with us with some patient advocates on the phone. And, um, the doctors, you know, say that, oh, well, the reason we didn't come talk to you, uh, about the Lamictal was we had to go talk to the neurology team about it. And I said, that's, that's not true because I haven't mentioned Lamictal to the nurse or anyone else. I just told CPS about that medication. So clearly they talked to you about it in the hallway and now you're coming here and you're acting like you were speaking with someone else about it this morning for us on our behalf and you weren't. So for you to say that you, that, that we decline these things, that is not true. And they say, well, we didn't just call CPS because of those things. It's because of all of it. Um, so they're expressing to me that the diuretic that we're the most comfortable with, um, they do not feel like will move fluid as quickly as they would like. Now, remember this all started with them saying, oh, the gentle compression of the ventilator will help move the fluid out of her lungs, but she's clearly, um, developing, uh, ventilator associated pneumonia. And I do think that maybe even the initial, uh, fluid that they saw in her lungs was from her aspirating from all the water they made her drink that she then went on to throw up. Um, and so, um, so they want to move in, into a more aggressive diuretic. And I request that maybe we start with diurel because diurel, while not the same as hydrochlorothiazide, it still works quickly. It's forceful. It takes about an hour, um, similar to Lasix. It is, it is a thiazide. Diurel is a thiazide and she has responded well to the hydrochlorothiazide. Um, so maybe we could do that first and we're met with an absolutely not. 
Um, and then I'm asking about uh, testing her for infection, given that the fluid that they're talking about seems to be continuing. And is it getting worse? Um, because that's kind of what they're implying. And they say, well, they don't test uh, the mucus secretions because we all carry bugs and they don't want to just throw antibiotics at anything. Um, so we're told by CPS we have, you know, the night to comply and they'll they'll contact us in the morning. So the vascular team comes and tells us that in order to install the PIC line, um, they have to let us know that the, it's hospital policy that they don't install a PIC in a child that has an active infection. And now Autumn has a fever. So she has an infection. So they refuse to test her earlier in the day. And now they're requiring something that they're telling me puts her at risk of sepsis. And so we assume all risk and do we consent? And of course, we're under coercion with CPS and we feel that we have to consent. Um, so she's also started on an antibiotic and we um, we have the resident come and tell us that she that they will actually allow us to use Diarel. Um, now I make her confirm that the doctors are okay with the diarrhea, with the thiazide option instead of the Lasix. And she comes back and she tells me, yes. So we begin the diarrhea. The next morning, uh, CPS calls me and they say, your hearing is at 1.30 because you are not in compliance. And I said, well, her medical record will show otherwise. We, we gave her the anti-seizure medication that they were recommending. We did the PICC line despite the risk. We started the diarrhea. We started the diuretic. Um, you need to call them back and, and confirm that we have complied, that her, her record will show that we have complied. And they call me back two hours later and they say, the doctors say, you still have not complied. So we're going to proceed with your hearing. Text us your email so we can send you the Zoom link. So we are not being properly served. Um, uh and I say, this is, this is literally impossible. We have complied with everything and I'm going to present her medical records. So I'm asking you to confirm with the right people because you must be speaking with the wrong people. And at this point I do get upset and I'm asking to speak with the doctor and they are not coming. And so um, right before the hearing, we get a text from CPS saying, we have confirmed you're in compliance and you're still going to have to be at a hearing. So we have frantically contacted lawyers and evidently in California for CPS's involvement, you, your lawyer has to have taken a course in dependence court. Um, so <laughs> of course the lawyer that we found that was willing to represent us within no time at all did not have that, but he was allowed to testify. So we had to go with the lawyer that we were, um, that we were given by the court. And even she, had not received any documents until just prior to the hearing. And during the hearing, she was missing documents. She said, I don't have that letter from the doctor. I don't have this. And so we didn't receive any of these documents until after the hearing. And so we didn't have due process. We didn't even know at that point because we assume that we have complied. What are, what are we being heard on? What are, what sort of court order is being pursued when, when they can't mandate anything beyond what we've done if we've done all all the things that were were recommended so um sorry it just yeah it's it's really hard to look back at so um in the in the hearing uh you know there were a lot of uh attempts to attack our character 
Um, and it is mind blowing to me that again, my daughter is not easily sedated. She is, uh, at this point we have moved from, um, propofol because you can only be on that for a short time to, uh, fentanyl where she develops, uh, severe agitation and delirium. So her eyes are rolling in different directions. She's pointing and jerking. Um, they move her then to morphine and she's having, uh, thrashing from the itching itchiness. Uh, she's, thrashing around and moving her head. So that's not safe with the tubes. And so she has restraints on, she's crying and they're attempting to also remove her mother and her father. Like it is mind blowing to me that they could see her in that state and pursue that. Um, so in the, in the hearing, we hear things about how, uh, so when, um, my daughter has sensitive skin and we asked to use these like organic baby wipes on her, but they're cold. And so in the middle of the night, when they're changing her diaper, I would say to the nurse, could you um, just, it's, since it's a disposable diaper and it's absorbent, like, could you just wipe her every other diaper change? Because otherwise, if she is sedated at all, if she's in a comfortable place, she, as soon as something cold touches her, she moves into a state of distress again. And it is not worth it to me to see her like that. Um, and so in the hearing, uh, we were described as requesting to leave her soiled after diaper changes. Um, sorry. Uh, so, um, obviously we have, uh, reasonable responses to each of the things that they are, uh, presenting against us, but, uh, we don't have the due process to be able to address them line by line. And we are able to testify for a short period of time. Um, you know, just a, a minute or two here and there. And I'm able to speak to the fact that it's odd to me that CPS who are not medical professionals are, you know, outlining these things that we should have to comply to when, you know, they're talking about Lasix as though it is a kidney treatment. And the number one risk of Lasix is kidney failure, right? That's the most significant risk is kidney injury and kidney failure. And so, um, you know, speaking to that and the fact that they actually cannot mandate anything beyond what they have because we have complied to the doctor's recommendations. Um, the, the judge says that, you know, she can't, she can't take her out of our care, um, because we're compliant, but that she would, um, be issuing, uh, a, a sua sponte, um, where she just decides that, uh, any life-saving measure that we do not consent to the hospital is granted, um, the ability to override so at this point we don't you know feel like it's so vague like they could they could try or attempt to justify anything by that means you know we don't feel that we really have the ability to advocate for her to the degree that we want to and she gets to a place when she's you know not able to be sedated they are throwing constant medications at it and they're talking about extubating her and I feel like they're setting her up to fail. They'll, they'll have her so drugged out of her mind that she is in just, just such, um, you know, it's delirium and thrashing and itching and, and yeah, her, her body would not be able to breathe properly was my concern. And so they say, 
you know, like, oh, we could extubate her now because this is so unsafe, but let's just throw morphine with Atarax, which helps you to, to, to diminish itching with morph morphine boluses and doing that all night. And then let's extubate her in the morning. And they would be able to say, see, she couldn't breathe on her own. We tried. Um, that was my concern. But uh, my daughter actually was able to maintain BiPAP the next day. Um, and around the same time, she did pull out her feeding tube. Um, and so, uh, you know, I did request because I didn't think it was necessarily going to be a life-saving issue. I requested that instead of trying to shove the feeding tube back in, which would be so distressing for her, um, that they give her TPN, which is a IV nourishment, right? It's got lipids and nutrients in it. And they push back a little bit, but I said, this is going to get more compliance from her with the mask, right? Not, not doing something forceful uh, on her again, um, giving her a little bit to get used to the, the BiPAP. And so by that evening, I was concerned because she still hadn't gotten the TPN and they came to me and I said, where, you know, where's, where's the nourishment that my daughter needs? And they said, well, we're not going to give her anything until uh, tomorrow when she gets her feeding tube back in. So again, it's like almost like building a case to make it look as though I was denying my daughter food. Um, so she, you know, we're told that she'll probably need to be on BiPAP for at least a week. And then, um, you know, we're getting to this place where they're talking about, you know, continuing the anti-seizure medications. And now, you know, they're discussing, you know, chronic, chronic kidney disease um, because her kidneys have not, you know, uh, come back fully online. But they got to a place when she was, um, you know, on the ventilator where they were administering late uh, Bumex, which is the, which is the equivalent of Lasix and they were doing it as a constant drip. So we don't really have a real read of what state her kidneys are even in without them being um, forced to do a lot of, of uh, excretion, you know, and, and when I learned about Lasix from, from the start with the patient advocacy groups was that, it um, creates an electrolyte exchange in the tubules of the kidneys that basically tells the kidneys you're doing it wrong. And so, um, you know, that electrolyte exchange is inflammatory to the tubules by getting rid of the mucus, the protective mucus that, that lines it. Um, and so, you know, we're in a place where we just feel like now they're talking medication management for the kidneys and we don't actually feel like we're in good hands. We don't. We feel like kind of like when we arrived, they said she'll be a case study. And that is how they have treated her every step of the way. So um, that's where we find ourselves now is that we're, you know, facing, um, you know, with the sua sponte with the court, they mentioned um, uh, they would set another hearing if we didn't comply, uh, that we would have to present ourselves. And um, that, you know, they hope, they, the judge said, I hope I don't see you again. But but you know how how long how long do we continue on this path of her being someone's guinea pig because it's very evident that with with this syndrome they call it hus um that with this syndrome they don't really know how it works they don't treat the underlying issue of why why are the kidneys responding this way to an e coli infection what is that instead they just want to force more urine output they don't they don't know why my daughter's system responded like this when my son did it. So that's where we are.
So I really appreciate it. that's a very, uh, very sad story. Uh, but I have some, I have some questions that I'm sure my listeners yes. are going to want to just out of curiosity. I didn't get an age. What's her, if you don't mind, what, what age is this poor dear? She's four. Four years old, four years. That's such a shame. How now E. coli is usually contracted through uh, uh, food or contact with someone that had E. coli. Any idea how, how that's contracted by a child? I, so I'm, they, you know, everyone asked, like the county called us and whatnot. And um, the only thing I can think was uh, let, you know, because E. coli, I mean, it could be peanut butter, right? But um, we did go to a lake and there were a lot of, there were a lot of geese in the lake that were, you know, pooping in the, in the water um, about 10 days before my son got it. So mm. I do think my daughter got it from my son. Um, but otherwise, there was no clear indicator because I have three children under, you know, my daughter just turned four. So three children under the age of four, we don't go out to eat a lot. So when people are just desperately asking if we ate in any restaurants, we didn't, you know, and I guess, you know, sometimes we cook on the grill or something like that. And meat was more rare than usual. But to be honest, my, my son is not as big of a meat eater as my daughter. So it's, there's just not a clear indicator. Like I said, peanut butter or romaine lettuce, like I know you can get it anywhere. And the only place that I can think of is, is the lake that we went to outside of Yosemite. That's unbelievable. And, and, and it encourages people to be very careful, especially with uh, any kind of animals or any kind of waste of any kind, because there's a lot of, mm -hmm. a lot of, uh, disease spread and, and in oceans believe it or not in the ocean of water even with the salt water there's a lot of, uh, mm. of uh, bacteria and other things now <clears throat> the mayo clinic would say interesting says that there's there's no cure uh, no way to treat it other than to uh, what you guys are doing and 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 you know you don't think of these things i used to i did we did some experimentation when i was in school with the coli and they and we were i was on you know in the fume hoods and gloves and everything else and that was years ago before you know we, they even took those precautions but it was still at that time one of the most dangerous uh, bacteria that, that we that we worked with um and 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 to think that in all this time that was 40 almost 50 years ago and to think in all this time we haven't made any any headway to this is just absolutely insane uh, we're gonna i don't i don't i don't want to get lost in the in in the, in the in the waters i want to get to the point right now of what we can do to help and and what and 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 what can my listeners do to help to help you guys out i guess it's the big thing and 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 we'd be glad to do whatever we can i'm sure yeah you know i think at this point like our biggest hurdle is really the ability to find our daughter the the more supportive care that she needs and not um not feeling that we uh you know are gonna continue to have cases built against us to try to make us seem unfit when we question their protocols right because they it's not really it's not really treating it's not treating the the issue with the kidney it's just trying to stop its progression and that whole idea of like oh it's an up and down and back and forth and i i had said well you don't really know if it's the medication or if it's the if it's the the kidney problem the the byproduct of the e coli you don't know because the treatment drugs carry the risk and so yeah, at this point, it's more, um, you know, around the, the legal issues that we're facing to be able to even, you know, question the doctors and move her into a different form of care at this point. Um, so, you know, finding a, a lawyer or any any like organization that knows how to kind of uh, work with with, you know, these issues around CPS and and um, yeah, and then any 
you know, any continued medical support for services that maybe, you know, can be supportive to our daughter's kidneys now that we move out of, you know, the issue with the ventilator. But, you know, just through all of this, it's also hard too being a marriage and family therapist and knowing that, you know, this, this type of trauma, right? Like the, the, um, physical therapy and occupational therapy team came through and they're saying, you know, oh, she's such a good girl. She's so compliant. She always nods her head. Yes. And I said to them, that's because when you say, okay, I'm going to do X, Y, Z. All right. And she says, no, you do it anyway. You either restrain her and do it or you drug her and do it. And I am concerned about how that will play out in my daughter's life because, the light in my daughter's eyes is gone, you know, the night when they're, they have the restraints on her and she's intubated on the ventilator and they're administering all kinds of sedatives like fentanyl. And then they're getting to a place where they're, you know, requiring me to uh, let them administer an antipsychotic on my just turned four year old. It's really hard. Um, so any resources really for our family are welcome. And then just to, um, you know, continue to apply pressure that we are not in this in a vacuum that my, my family, uh, is, you know, supported by other people that are looking out for, for Autumn's best interests, you know, that we want full transparency about the things that are taking place. Because again, we, we didn't consent to her being ventilated. We consented to her only being intubated for the MRI and the anesthesia. And the same with the medications that were given without our consent, there's mismanagement. And then there's also malpractice. And I want, I want all of my, my audience, my listeners to, re, to consider what's going on with this poor little four-year-old. And remember, this is California. This is probably the, the absolute most di- dictatorial uh, nation in the entire world. I'm going to call it a nation because that's that many mm-hmm. people that has that control over their citizens. Um, I hope mm-hmm. you don't mind calling California a dictatorial nation. I'm, yeah, but I'm not tied to California myself. It, you it, know? It, it's a fact. It really is. But I want you to consider this. Number one, let's, there's three things that, 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 that uh, just appall me. The fact that you got a four, little four-year-old. Remember this child is on they put on a ventilator taking fentanyl and propofol and and, and you know propofol killed is, is what killed uh, michael jackson you got fentanyl it's so illegal that, that if a if a cop sees right. it practically just looks at it it's going to kill you and and, and the ventilators 90 percent of people during the during the the, uh, the covid issues in 2020 were killed not by the virus but by the ventilators they were put on yes. that should have had yes. different treatment and here's this poor little four-year-old trying to recover how do you recover when you've got po- all this poison and all this dangerous machines right. connected to you uh, so keep that mm-hmm. in mind anything we can do to help do we have a way to contact or somebody we should be talking to or or how can we how can we have them web addresses or something we can give our, yeah our yeah so yeah i just i want to yeah come back to that point of, of her almost being like a machine i was crying one night because she had mm-hmm you know, a, a catheter again, an art line, a pick line, multiple IVs, she's got a ventilator, like she was more machine. And they saw her that way more machine than human. It was it was one of the most traumatizing experiences of my life. And, and as a mother, surely so. Um, in terms of uh, being able to get resources uh, to us, uh, we've been working with Remnant Nursing. Um, you can go to their Contact Us page uh, and they do have an email. They're just helping to field all of that for us because we're continuing to have to make 
medical decisions. We're continuing to have to work with, um, you know, the, the legalities with CPS. And then I also have a toddler and a newborn in the hospital room with us. So, um, so they've been so kind as to, as to help with that. Well, we appreciate it. Well, hopefully some of our view, our listeners will, um, We'll go and help you out because you, you really do need that. Uh, when we when we uh, end, end the uh, this interview, if you could hang on on for a bit, I want to uh, talk to you as well. If that's okay. Sure. Do you have anything yeah. anything else we can conclude with to, that might help our listeners? Um, you know, if I know that people, uh, you know are willing to call the hospital and we are so grateful for that to, to continue to reinforce transparency. We are not asking for doxing. That's, that's something I want to stress. We are not asking for doxing. Um, but we do also greatly appreciate continued prayer for our family. Um, and just to, uh, share Autumn's story as widely as possible. You know, I'm trying to, um, I'm trying to be in a position where they, you know, can't deem me unfit and not be emotional, but it's very hard um, because I want, I want her to, to get to a place where we can all get home and heal. And I know that takes me being her advocate. So um, yeah, any, any support, but particularly prayer and just keeping her in your thoughts and that she's not alone in here. Thank you. Once again, hope, hope uh, Schachter and it's uh, daughter Autumn. Um, please let's help her out. Thank you for coming on and we'll do whatever we can. We'll get the word out. And like I said, hang in there when we terminate the, the interview. And thanks sure. again for coming on and telling your story. Thank you. Thank you so much.